So yeah, Kevin and them should be back, and uh, next week hopefully we'll get some exciting updates from what all happened down in Guatemala, so very, very cool. So uh, let me open in a word of prayer real quick. Lord, we uh, come before you today. We thank you for an opportunity to gather in your name. Lord, we know there are people on this planet that can't do that. Uh, They cannot gather together without heavy persecution. They cannot gather to worship and to praise your name. They don't even have that option presented before them. And so we just pray and thank you that you've allowed us uh, the, the breath and the ability to come, the life in our being, to get out of bed and to get in here uh, and to study your word, to praise your name, to sing to you, to uh, give you the honor and the praise that you are due. We pray that you'll use this time as we dive into your word. May you open our hearts and the eyes of our heart and our ears that you may uh, teach us through your word. Lord, for we know that unless you apply your word, uh, it's a struggle for us. But if your spirit takes your word and applies it deep within our hearts, Lord, uh, great things can be accomplished and great fruit comes from that. So we pray that you'll guide our our, uh, time together and uh, may you be with us here as we uh, pour into your word. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. So, uh, you know, when you look at things in life, I, was, I wanted to talk about some different things from Proverbs, and we'll get there, but sort of as an intro, uh, I have four kids, and we just had a fifth one, so now I have uh, five kids, and so I have to be thinking about things with college and tuition, and my oldest is 13, the youngest is a matter of three weeks, a little over three weeks now, uh, and there's two years in between most of them until we get to the, our fifth one here, but you know, you look at college and you look at the tuition and you look at the cost and, and you have to count that cost and say, is, is it worth it and everything else. And the, the issue is it could, the cost is very, very high nowadays and it continues to get high. I don't even know what it'll be like when, when Riley, my daughter here, gets to actually be of the age to uh, attend the university. But today, if you look just at tuition alone, nothing else, just tuition you could range anywhere from 10000 maybe upwards of 25000 per year to go to a major university. Uh, and, and that's not including a lot of other things that go into to be, being a student and, and taking part in the, in the class and books and other things and housing and whatever else, you know, that you, the, the fees that end up adding up. But um, you would think that, you know, if you had to pay that kind of money, if I sat here today and I asked you the question, if you had to pay that amount of money, would you get up and go to class? Would you actually listen to what the professor had to say? Would you maybe take some good solid notes? Perhaps you might even be willing to go in after hours and knock on that professor's door and, and if you're struggling with something, can you help me see this? I'm, I just, I, I'm not following this equation. I can't figure out this. Uh, y- you know, and I bet if I asked that question, it would be pretty much a uniform raise of hands. Yes, if I'm paying fifteen dollars to $20,000 per year just to sit in a seat and listen to somebody and go take tests, I probably will think twice about making sure I'm there, that I'm listening, and I'm doing my best. Um, And yet, when I went to the University of Kansas, I saw a very interesting reality. I saw a full gamut of things in the responses of people. Uh, I saw everything from certain friends of mine that had the the 0.25 GPA. And they found out that they're not going to make it. And unfortunately, some of them didn't actually make it. Uh, I saw others 
that put forth sort of a medium level of effort, sort of the I need to get by sort of effort. Uh, and they did just that. They, they got by. They, you know, GPA is okay. They learned some things. Uh, and, and they made it through. They may have even ended up with a thing on the wall that says we bestow upon so-and-so the degree of a bachelor of, uh, you know, of science and whatever. And that's great. But then I also saw a third camp of people that not only did they make it and get through and get the, the letter and the diploma, they were so diligent in class, outside of class, going to the professor, every day present, doing, I mean, wee hours of the night studying the material, trying to really learn what this material meant and how they could learn it. And, and I think, you know, you, you see that. You see sort of, you know, general ranges when you go into the universities. Um, and you'd say, well, why is it that, you know, when you're paying $15,000, $20,000 per year, why would you even have the first two camps? Why would you not be all in the third camp? And I think the reality is, is that a lot of times at that point in life, people are going through some transitions. It's some new things in life. Many times it's of an age where a person is finally outside uh, of, the, of their, the house of their parents, They've had to live maybe 15, 16, 18, 19 years submitting to the will of their father and their mother, doing this, doing that. You can't have this. If you're going to live under my roof, you're going to do, you know, and finally they're outside of that, that sphere uh, and they're faced with the reality of it. Now you get to choose. Now you are faced with, you can be your own boss, free to make your own decisions uh, and so you get a time where people make a lot of different decisions. And if truth be told, those decisions actually have, can have very profound impact on their whole life. It's amazing. A, a, a decision all the way back there early on in life can greatly change a path that a person ends up on. And so, you know, we see that the magnitude of these choices are, can be significant. But the reality is also that a person entering into that phase of life is, in reality, is embarking upon a lifelong journey of choices and decisions that each and every one of us right here in this room, we're still on that journey. You're still on the journey of, how am I going to choose to respond to this today? What am I going to do about this situation now? How, what's my plan regarding this? What's my goal for my kids? What's my, my budgetary goal or plan with my money? What's my plan with my job? I mean, do I need to look for a different job? I mean, it, it, how am I going to apply myself at church? How am I going to serve? The, what's my, what's my, what are my choices there? I mean, there's choices all over in our, in our walk uh, on this earth. Um, and we see that our lives are marked by these choices. And yet as followers of Christ, we also understand that there is an invisible sovereign God at work in us and through us the entire time. Uh, and I want to look at this idea and consider the issue of man's freedom to choose and God's absolute sovereignty over all things. And many times when you look at these two subjects, you end up in a very broad quandary of questions. And theologians have poured through and tried to balance and figure out constructs. How do we, how do we deal with this? It's just, it, it, you know, it can be very, a lot of different questions arise. Uh, and yet we have clear passages in the word of God that help us see both realities. Both realities. Man's volition 
and God's sovereignty. Uh, and one such book that presents both truths literally in the exact same verse, side by side in bold color, or in this case, I could say black and white, is the, is the book of Proverbs. It doesn't, it doesn't beat around the bush, doesn't try to paint any weird construct for you to figure out exactly. It just will state it. This is true. These two statements. Uh, And just as an example, because we're going to dive into Proverbs in a little bit, but as an example, just to give you a sense of how Proverbs are sort of written, they're many times presented short little statements that present profound truth that force the listener to to see two realities. They're actually many times contrasted realities or truths. and many, many times, it forces us to make, have to make some decisions, some choices. What are the two? Where do I line up? How do I, where am I in this? Um, Proverbs 20.13 is one I don't have it up on the board, but it is one that actually during my years at the University of Kansas became a very profound proverb. And it presented me with a choice. And it presented me with two different black and white roads. Proverbs 20.13 says, Do not love sleep lest you become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. That's the end of the proverb. You love sleep? I'll tell you what the result will be. You open your eyes? I'll tell you what the result of that. I had to learn this in college. It was another one of these examples. I chose to love sleep one semester. And I found out when the grade card arrived, ah, there's a little bit of a problem here. You loved sleep more than getting up and going to class. And when I got that card, and my dad and my mom were there, what's going on here? And the reality was, I had made a choice. In this exact proverb, I had made a choice. I loved sleep like you wouldn't believe, man. I would sleep and sleep. And I just sleep. We had a, we had a dorm called the Sleeping Dorm. We, we ran the air conditioning 24-7. I mean, it was, I could see, it was so cold and cool. And I would get all wrapped up and bundled in there. It didn't matter when the alarm's going off. I can skip the class. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, I could sleep like no tomorrow. But the reality was is my grades went horribly down. And I'm not... You, you can paint it as dark and down as you want. I'm not going to tell you the GPA, but it was down there. Uh, and I had to face the reality that I have to listen to this. Is Joel going to open his eyes today and go out and do something? Or is he going to love sleep today? And just a real clear, clear statement from the word. Uh, and yet we see in Proverbs presented the idea, yes, you're given these choices, but also all the while God is sovereign. Uh, And I want to lay some foundations before we dive into Proverbs uh, quickly here, hopefully. Looking at God's sovereignty first, uh, we have to define, okay, what is God's sovereignty? We talk about God's sovereignty. What are we talking about? Um, Is it something you hear Christians? We mention it. We see it in the Word. Uh, And I would define it as very simply as he is over all things. His control extends over all things. And I would take take us to a couple passages to establish this. One is Psalms 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Fairly straightforward passage. And in it, we see several things. First, that he has established his throne. That's the word established in Hebrew is a word that would mean it is planted, it is secure, it is foundational, it is an immovable. 
we also see, secondly, that he's positioned it in a location that is above everything that we could know or think. He's put it, his throne, in the heavens. Uh, and a third thing you see here, just flat out stated, is that his sovereignty rules over all. So there's rulership and extent over all. So we have three clear statements here about God's sovereignty that's established here, that it is above all, that it is firmly established, and that its extent rules over all. Uh, another statement we could look at and learn a little bit from would be David's view of God's sovereignty. When David was passing the baton off to Solomon, his son, he calls the nation, he calls the people, he calls upon the Lord. And he says, thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord. And thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. David had a view of God's sovereignty that was dead on in the sense that everything is under the rulership and authority of God. Um, An amazing thing to see. Another thing to see when you flip forward into the New Testament you get to the writer of Hebrews, and he's trying to make some points here to the, to the Hebrews to, to, to listen to, but he gets to the point about a covenant with the Hebrews, and he said, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, when you make an oath, you would like to swear by something that, has author- that you're underneath its authority. Because that would have meaning, that I'm going to swear upon something that has authority over me, and I'm, and I'm stating that what I'm about to tell you, I will do, or it is true. That's why when you go into a court, I had to go a, a while back and give a testimony. They, I, had to read, I had to take an oath that I will do, and they, they, they invoked the name of the Lord in the oath. Okay, and in this case, God's trying to make a covenant with Abraham, and he searches for someone above him to say, I want to make an oath under this, and he finds no one. There's no one under him that he, over, sorry, over him to, to make, to swear by. Again, establishing that he is over all. So we clearly see that God is over all things. And really, we could spend the rest of our time on that one subject alone. Because the scriptures leave little doubt about this fact. Uh, But when we gaze into the extents and the magnitude of God's great sovereignty, we may be left with some, some great questions regarding the presence of sin and evil. This is the classic you know, discussion. If God's sovereign over all, uh, why is he allowing the continued presence of sin and evil millennium after millennium after another millennium? And oh, by the way, we'll throw another millennium in there. Oh, and an, oh, by the way, we're going to do another millennium. Why? If he's sovereign over all, why all the time? Why, why not deal with it? And I think that leads us to our second big point and foundation is uh, the second the answer is wrapped up in the the fact that man has been given the ability to choose this ability to choose is what we would refer to as volition there are sort of three really great capacities that god has given man one of them is the intellect that is the ability to think he's given that to you you have the ability to think and to reason he's also given you the ability to feel and express Feelings, that's very real, and they can be very powerful, and that's what we would call emotion. 
And then the third thing he's given to you is the ability to make choices. You actually have the ability to get up and make choices. Even this afternoon when you walk through these doors, or even right now as I speak, you have the choice to either listen to what he has to say and listen to the word, or I'm going to fade off. I'm going to fade back into the woodwork and think about something else today. You're, you're faced with these choices, and God's given you volition. And if we wanted to trace back the origins of this volition and go back to our origins as humans, we would go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And we see clearly God leaving the room for the volition of man. Right off the bat in Genesis 2.19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. A fascinating little turn of events there in the garden. God could have said, I call this the cow. And he put it, but, but he didn't do that. He says, I'm going to make these animals and these creatures, and then I'm going to do something very fascinating. I'm going to let you choose to name them. And I will watch to see what you choose to name this animal. Uh, and so right off the bat, and that, that one, you know, you sometimes sort of skip over that choice that Adam had there because you get to the next big choice, which is the one that everyone focuses on, which is the big fall of Adam and Eve in the garden when he made another choice. Uh, But nonetheless, you need to realize that all the way back, even this is prior to the fall of this one, he's given man the ability to choose and have volition to make, use his intellect, use his emotions to make wise and good decisions regarding how am I going to name this creature? Uh, Another example from the same time period, the same location, that we find out is that God is in so much control. His sovereignty is so secure and so steadfast and so foundational that he's able to extend to Adam a choice to even challenge God's own will for Adam. He's willing to let Adam, say to Adam, you can choose otherwise. You can choose to do, not do what I'm about to tell you to do. And he does so by putting a tree smack dab in the middle of the garden. He didn't have to do that. He chose to put a tree right there. And he said, uh, the Lord commanded, said, From the tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So clearly laid right before Adam in this condition is that I've given you the choice To follow my will, and my will is that you don't eat from that tree. And oh, by the way, I have engineered this so so much so that when and if you choose to go that other way, and you will have the choice, but when and if you choose to go that other way, I've actually engineered consequences into my universe that I have architected. And the consequence herein we find out would be death. So we have have the question laid before Adam. Uh, submit to his creator's will and listen to his single command or make his own his choice to follow his own will contrary to what his creator, his designer just told him. And uh, to me, this is a foundational question for every person. What will it be? Your will or my will? We're faced with this every day as we walk in a life, walking by the Spirit. Um, Even right now in 2016, I have to face the question, am I walking by my will in this situation 
or by the Lord's will? What is his will in this? Am I going to search to find it? How am I going to submit to that? And he'll say, you have a choice. You can go that road. You'll eventually find out where that leads. I'll bring you back over here. We'll look at this. But the reality is, as he lays before him, two very distinct choices. Now, you'd say, why did God give man the ability and the avenue, by giving him volition, to choose his will over the will of his creator? He could have made him say, I'm not going to even give you the choice. You will do this. If all that, he could have done that. But I think the answer to that, and that's a profound question, why did he give him the ability to choose? The answer, I think, if I was to summarize it, and we're not going to dive into this a lot here, but I believe he wants his creatures to realize the manifold wisdom and benefit of his ways, thereby he free, and thereby freely choosing on their own to follow him. You follow this? He wants us to realize that when we submit to his will and his directions and his counsel and his guidance, it goes well. But he also says, but you can choose the other road and you can find out where that goes. And he gives us then another aspect, which is called time. He gives you time. Um, I would even go so far back on this other question to state that if he didn't give the ability to have volitional choice, you really can't have love and the demonstration of his grace and his mercy and everything else. If he was in the, in the business of making robotic puppets, you would not get to learn and see his love, nor would we be able to choose to love. Even love itself, we love, why? Because he first loved us. We can choose to love and walk in love because he first loved us. That can even be a choice in our life. How are we going to handle it? Are we going to love that individual like he would love them or not? Uh, so a lot of interesting things to see. But the reality is, is he wants us to have the choice and learn the lesson that it pays to follow and submit to his will. Um, and so, you know, we had this question a minute ago. Why all the millions and millenniums and millenniums and thousands and thousands of years of sin and evil? Why allow all that, that? And I think that is the answer where you see God has inserted time into this equation so that you can learn this lesson. How else could you learn God's will is right? If you had to ask the question, how can you learn that God's will is best? How would you answer that? If he just, just forced it into your mind, my will is best. I'm going to just push it into your mind. No, he says, I'm going to let you choose, and you'll find out. You can go down either road. And, and we'll look in a second in Proverbs. Two clear roads over and over and over. Even Christ. There's a wide road, and there's a narrow road. And he presents that before us. And he wants us to see if you're going to learn the right way to live and the, the fact that his will is best, he gives us time to have our ability to make these choices. And we find out from Second Peter that uh, he's put this time in here for a purpose. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. That's the idea of waiting, giving time, not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But know this for certain, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So you get the reality that both the patience of God, but also the reality there is an end. There is an end. There is a time when the time will be up. 
If I went out here on the streets and I said, and I just grabbed a person off the downtown Springfield, and I said, who do you say Jesus is? Do you think he's the son of God? Do you think he died on a cross? Do you actually paid for your sins Would you, to appease uh, God, his father in, heaven, in, in the heavens? They say, what kind of, you get a lot of people, no, I don't believe that. I don't buy that at all. I think we're here by random processes and random chances. This is all a cosmic, you know, this is, you know, in a sense, an evolutionary chain of events that has occurred. You know, there might have been a good guy named Jesus back then, but he wasn't a son of God. You'd get this. And that would be their choice to make that decision, to choose to say no to Jesus. But, you know, there will come a time when that volitional choice to, to say no to that, to say, no, I don't believe Jesus is Lord of all. No, I won't say that he's king of kings and Lord of all. Do you know that'll come to an end? That little time, this time period when they have, when all people have been given the ability to say no to him, to say, challenge out, say, no, I don't believe that's true. That will come to an end. And we see it in Philippians they will bow their knee, knee. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and oh, by the way, those who are under the earth. If you're questioning who this applies to, everybody, Paul wants you to see, absolutely everybody will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Their ability to choose, their time of choice will run out. Um, and so we've laid some groundwork here regarding God's sovereignty and man's volitional choice. And by the way, just real quick note too, you'd look at this and you say, well, God's up here, a man's down here. And yes, he's sovereign enough and his sovereignty and his power is good enough that he can juggle man's choices down here such that, yeah, they're not going to thwart his plans and they're not going to cause him to teeter off of his throne. We see that man's way down here. But do you know that he actually did the same exact thing? with his highest, one of his highest created angelic beings. He allowed him to have a choice too. And you know what he said when given the choice? Basically the same thing Adam did. I will, he says in Isaiah 14, Lucifer, I will, he says again, I will arise and overtake. I will ascend to the throne. I will make myself as the most high. Five times. I will, I will, I will, my will, my will. Did that, all of a sudden God said, "Uh uh-oh, we have a big problem here. I don't know how I can handle it. He's now usurped my control and he's outside of the realm of my authority. I'm, I'm, I'm done for. No. That was all part of God's sovereignty. He has no problem with, with allowing a, an individual to make choices and yet all the while being fully sovereign. So let's go to Proverbs to see this, because this is where it gets interesting. The pages of Proverbs present us with wisdom that gives the hearer extremely practical skill for living life, skill for marriage, skill for how to handle money, choices that you would make concerning money, choices and skill for how to live your life at work. What about your family? How are you going to raise kids? Proverbs has stuff to say about this. What about at church? What about choices and skill for how to, what to deal with this right here? Because this can be a big, big problem. And it'll talk about that, what you do with your words. Proverbs will dive into that. Um, but one thing that runs time and time again uh, is he, he gives these proverbs to the, to the listener, to the hearer. And so long as the hearer chooses to incline the ear and listen... 
His admonitions will result in great blessings and life to the hearer. And yet we also see that if the hearer and the listener chooses, chooses to not heed the warnings, Proverbs is pretty clear, the the path leads to death. Uh, Look at the beginning of Proverbs, right off the bat, wisdom shouting in the streets at the corner uh, of the city square. She's made herself loud and clear to all. And we get down, we find out, well, how are people going to respond to this? And here's what we find out with, with, a, with sort of two different classes. Here's one. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of their fruit, the fruit of their own way, and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive shall kill them, and the complacency of fools shall destroy them. But... There's hope here. He who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. Note, there was a critical choice made at the beginning of this little section of Proverbs. A critically bad choice. But yet, there was a choice made. And the choice was, they chose not to fear me. The fool hated knowledge and they made a conscious decision in life. I'm not going to fear the Lord. I'm not going to submit my will to his. I'm not going to bow the knee. I'm not going to listen to his reproof. I'm going to spurn everything he's presented to me in this book. I I, I could throw this in the garbage, they would say. And he said, and so the result of that choice and that decision leads, I will let them go down that road. And that road will lead to death, it says. But for those who listen to me and submit and heed what I'm telling, you, telling them, notice it's life, a secure life. They will live securely. And they will not live with a dread of evil. Um, so we see that these, this, these two paths and these two roads presented, one with life, and one with death. And this is a common theme in Proverbs, by the way. Check out Proverbs thirteen fourteen. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Proverbs fourteen twenty seven. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. And I love Proverbs 8. It's an incredible chapter in the Bible talking even at the creation when God made the world and he said, who was right with him? Wisdom says, I was, I was there. I was there with him. And he, by me, he created. God's manifold wisdom personified in, in Proverbs chapter 8. And it gets down to the end. It says, heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me chooses to listen to me and watches daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love something else. They love death. Again, the two ideas presented very clearly, one who finds life and one who goes down a road of death. Um, 
reality is it sounds very reminiscent of Genesis 2. You, you hear what I'm saying, Adam? You listen to what I'm telling you to do? You will find life and you'll be able to live abundantly here. But if you so choose to not submit to my will, what does he say to Adam? You will find death. And that's the reality. Now, when we consider God's sovereignty and and, and his will in light of man's will and our volitional choice, we sometimes end up at two very uh, unbiblical extremes in my mind. Uh, We could arrive at a conclusion that would be something like this. Uh, Why pray? Why evangelize? Because our choices are meaningless. He's going to do what he wills anyway. That, uh, there are people that end up in that extreme. There are then those that would say, well, I have all the say. It's all about man's choice, nothing else. And yet, you know what? If I choose the bad path and I've blown it, it's over. I've thwarted his plans. He can't help me now. I've, he's, he's teetered on his throne. And he's, he's just a God waiting on pins and needles to see what I'm going to do because I'm the guy calling the shots here. Uh, so you could end up in that very uncertain outcome. Uh, and the reality is we can look in the scripture and find people in both of these camps. I can think of one right off the bat in Camp A. He came, a guy, a prophet of the Lord, came to him, knocked on his door. If you don't do something about your sons, they're going to die because you have not disciplined your sons regarding the sacrifices that are going before the Lord. And you're doing this in front of the nation of Israel. Choose to respond to this prophecy from the prophet, the man of God sent to you. He says, you know what his response was? It's God's will. Let him do what he pleases. He does nothing. He decides he's in camp A. I can't do anything. I can't ask the God for grace or mercy here because he's decided and, and it's a done deal. That's in uh, 1 Samuel with, with the story of Eli. You can read that when, we have, when you have some uh, chance to do maybe this afternoon or something. But a very, very cool story that you get to see. Versus someone like a David who's also presented with a prophet of the Lord knocking on his door, coming and saying, your son, your child will die unless you do something. And you know, he, he makes a choice. He says, okay, I could sit and do nothing, but I'm going to choose to pray, to intercede, to call out for the Lord. Perhaps, who knows? Perhaps the Lord may relent. And that is an excellent attitude. The prayer does matter. The attitude, the choice to fall on the ground before the Lord mattered to David, and it mattered to the Lord. Um, and we end up seeing great blessings as a result with his son down the road named Solomon, who wrote the book we're studying here. Um, so we end up in these two extremes. Now, these extremes, in my mind, are unbiblical. Clearly, we see purpose in prayer. We see value in prayer. We also see that we have volitional choice, and yet God is totally sovereign. So let's look at a couple of things. How does the choice of man relate to the blessings of God, the sovereign blessings of God? Check out Proverbs 3, 5, a, a, a very famous proverb, one that I'm sure many of you could probably recite by memory. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I would ask the question, do you see God's sovereignty in that verse? Or these verses? How can one provide a promised blessing to make your paths straight if he's not sovereign overall and can't make sure it gets done? 
If, if there are things outside of his control that might thwart his plan, that might make him unable to deal with the situation, he can't make this promise. Do you see this? There's no way someone could promise you to make your path straight if, uh-oh, I wasn't expecting that. Sorry, buddy. I, I told you I could make your path straight, but I can't today. I, I, my hands are tied over here. You're off on your own. That isn't the case. So clearly we see the sovereignty of God. Uh, but we also see in this the reality of some very clear elements that point to the choice of the hearer. Do you see a choice presented here when you look at this proverb? Actually, there's several choices presented. One is that you must choose to trust in the Lord. Actually put your hope and your trust and your confidence in the Lord. And that's not just a minor thing. He says, with all your heart. That's not just on one day a week when I happen to go to church. This is with all your heart. In the things you do. You also have to make a choice. Am I going to lean upon my understanding regarding this decision? Or am I going to choose to look elsewhere for proper understanding and guidance here? Because I do have the choice. I could choose to lean on my own understanding. And he also then gives a third choice. Will you acknowledge him in all all the things in your life? The word acknowledge in Hebrew is actually an intimate word for knowing him. Do you know the Lord in everything that you do? Do you seek to know him when you go to work? How you handle yourself at work? What you do when you drive the kids to school? Are you knowing the Lord in that? Or what's your will in this? How am I going to walk for you in this? Do you acknowledge him in those situations? If you do, he says, I'm sovereign to make sure that those paths are true. The paths are right. The paths are straight. Uh, So excellent uh, point here is to see that if you choose to trust me fully and choose to not lean upon your own understanding and your own evaluation, then I will act in my sovereignty to make sure your path is straight and leads to life. I would ask one final question on this particular proverb. How many uh, issues and troubles have you gotten into in, in your life when making choices that found their basis on your own understanding. You follow this? How many issues and troubles have come into your life when you look back and you realize, I based that decision not on really on trying to find the will of the Lord or the Lord's guidance or his understanding. I based it almost purely on my understanding. I, I erupt, even in your anger, you can erupt in something and you realize... That might not have been the best of choices. Perhaps I could have made a better choice. Uh, And this is over and over in our lives we see this. Another thing, let's look at the works of man. We work, we toil, we do things with our hands. We go out, we earn a living. How does that that jive with the sovereign blessing of God? Uh, It says that we, I looked up some stats. We spend about a third of our lives working. You can go look at a little uh, cool little pie chart that the, the, the statistics of, uh, on the, from the Bureau of Labor and, and Work in the United States. You'll see where the time is spent. There's a pretty big chunk in the sleep category, which is always sort of nice. <laughs> a pretty big chunk in the work category, and then all these other little slivers. And, and, the, and it's a sampling of over th- about three and a half million people. It, you spend a ton of your time working. You'd say, well, wait, it's my choice to work. I choose to work hard. 
I want, I want to, what's the result? I earned this. Well, let's see what Proverbs has to balance when it comes to works and the Lord's blessings. Proverbs 10.22, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it in the uh, in AS. In the NIV, I like the translation a little bit better at the end. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. You look at this and you say, do you see the sovereignty of God involved in providing blessings of wealth, riches, possessions? In that proverb? Yeah. In fact, if you were a real scholar and you wanted to study the, the Hebrew here, you would find out that that little word that there in the NAS if you were looking at a literal translation, the, the translation would say, the blessing of the Lord, it makes rich. And a good English student would say, well, why, why do we need to say it? Just say the blessing of the Lord makes rich. Good English teacher would say, drop the it. It's, 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 you don't need it. It's too many words. But the Lord does this to stress something. And he does this elsewhere in, in Old Testament Hebrew writing. He uses, he'll insert those types of emphasizing words so that you see the significance and the source of where this really comes from, in this case. It and it alone is what gives you this, these riches. You can see it in Genesis 15 when God himself speaking to Abraham. Abraham's in a quandary. Of, he's gone with Hagar. He's sought this other, you know, he's trying to figure out the whole situation. Who's going to get the blessing? He's going to, the line of Ishmael, what, you know, what's going on? That's how the Lord's going to lead this. And the Lord comes and says, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body shall be your heir. But that isn't what he said. One who comes forth from your own body he shall be your heir. He stresses this point. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. The blessing of the Lord, it, and it alone makes rich. Um, so you'd say from Proverbs 10.22, we see that the Lord is the source of material blessing. But there's more. The latter part of this exact same chapter in Proverbs uh, actually, it's a little bit before this, but it, in, the, in the same chapter, we see the same question uh, regarding man's works and the blessings achieved through working hard. You see this statement, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. You'd say, okay, do I see the choice of man here in this proverb? Oh, yeah, I do. And I try to teach this proverb to my kids all the time. You're not just going to go to school and say, I want an A, but I'm not going to do any work. Just say, I'm not going to study for the test. I'm not going to do anything. You're not going to go run a great time in a cross-country race, just being negligent and doing nothing and expect to show up and run a, you know, a nine-minute or an eight-minute mile and a half. It's not going to happen. You will have to make the choice to be diligent in your efforts and in your work. And so you see that presented in the same chapter. And so here we see that if a person so chooses to neglect his or her work with a negligent hand, it results in poverty. But if a person so chooses to work with a diligent hand, he makes rich. So you'd have to ask the question, what is it then? You might be frustrated. What is it then? Is it God's sovereignty that it and it alone makes rich? Or is it, is it my ability to choose and work with diligence and get up at the crack of dawn and go out and work hard? Because it certainly sounds like I've got a little bit of both. And the reality is this is where we get into major problems in Christendom. We like to look at things as either ors. 
We want to end up coming to this as an either or. It's got to be either or, right? Why impose an either or? I'm here to tell you, in fact, I'm, we're going to go through more here in a second. There's no either or at all involved in this. It's both. So get used to that. It's both. Uh, in fact, you could say, well, then why does he want us to work? And why would he be the, you know, why does he take us through these situations and, and give us uh, these sorts of situations where we have to make these choices? Uh, we find out when Moses sheds a little uh, light into this in Deuteronomy, when he explains to the nation of Israel the Lord's sovereign leading in light of their work and their struggle. So they really have to choose to work, but he also sheds light on the Lord's behind this. In, in Deuteronomy 8, he says, He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you from the, fl- the rock of Flint. And in the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power, the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Why did the Lord sovereignly lead them in the manner that he did? Clearly, he wanted them to learn a great truth. Their wealth and prosperity was not gained by their power alone. It was by the work of the Lord through them. And you think about this and you say, you know, who gives you the breath to get up and go to work? Who gives you the power and the forethought to even think and function with a capacity at your work and in your labor? Is it not God who does these things? And can you not look back and say, it is his power that is affording me these opportunities. And then I have the choice to walk through them. And he's continually empowering me to go out and work diligently. James states it real clearly, too. He, he, uh, you know, he just flat out states it. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That's a pretty, that, that, that kind of statement, by the way, Sometimes we just, oh, that's just good biblical ease. It's just biblical language. I just do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. No, that's a serious thing. He's saying, you better not be deceived about something in your life. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So we see clearly that We work diligently. We make the choice to work hard. And that has both the option of blessing when we do that or when we neglect consequence. And yet you also see the Lord and the Lord is the one who makes, gives the results and the blessing in terms of prosperity, wealth, riches. Um, Another one to go on. What about the plans of a man's heart in relation to the sovereign leadership of God? The decisions to make plannings, uh, plans for our life in light of God's sovereignty. Check out Proverbs 19.21. Many are the, man, are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, again we have the same type of statement, it will stand. The, it could just say, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. No, he says, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. 
Do we see man's choice in this type of proverb? The whole first statement says, yes, you will go out and you will make many plans. Many, 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 many plans through your life. Many things you'll choose and you'll say, I want to go here, I want to do that, I want to do... And you'll have many of them. And yet he contrasts it in the same proverb by saying, but the counsel of the Lord, singular, plurality of plans amongst man, in a man's mind, all kinds of plans, but the counsel, singular, of the Lord, it will stand. Um, You know, you look at this and you see both put side by side. We're given the right to make plans. Nothing wrong with that. We'll look at more in just a second. But also, God's sovereign counsel, it's the only one that will fully stand the test of all time. You can make your plan. I'm going to make a plan next year. I'm going to get up and do X, Y, or Z every day. And you'll get up. You could get up and do that. Will it stand the test of time forever? No, but the Lord's counsel will. I'm not saying there's no value in, in planning good things. It's good. By the way, why do we have so many plans? Why do we have so many plans? I would say it's because so many times we need a contingency plan. We need a plan A. We need the classic plan B. And then if you're like me, you might even think about having a plan C. Because the plan A may not work and I need to fall back to plan B. B may not work and I fall back to C. Now, I work designing audio amplifiers and I design circuits and I work on circuit boards and, I, and I've had people come and they'll look at the circuit board and they'll look at all the complexities and they'll say, Joel, why are we including this circuit in this audio amp? And, I, and the reality is I have to explain to them very clearly. You know why? Because I know I make many mistakes as an engineer. And I know that I've turned on many an audio amplifier that I designed and it did nothing but blow up. I mean, I'm talking about fire, and I'm, under, I'm down under things with hearing protection and goggles, and I'm under the bench, and you're down like this. And I, I have a degree in electrical engineering, by the way. And, and you're down here, and you're like, and you have a breaker, and you're like, okay, now at any moment, it could completely explode with a massive explosion. And, so, and I've actually seen, I remember one time I did that in fires. I was like, that wasn't good. You know, you're, you, you get up and you say, plan A didn't work that time. You, you can do all the math. You can run simulations. I mean, I talk with engineers all the time. Until you get that baby on the bench and start working with it, you'll never find out. You can do the nth level simulation you want, but you will not find out whether it's going to work until you try to power that thing on. And guess what? Almost every time, every time. And any good manager of electrical engineers working on hardware design will tell you this. We got a budget a bunch of time at the beginning for the reality that plan A won't work. We'll have to go to plan B, and then we'll have to go to plan C. And the, you look at the circuit board, you know, why all these little spots with no components even stuffed on them? Well, the answer is that circuit there may not even work, so I got to have a fallback. Um, so this is what we see, you know, in electronics Sometimes we see the opposite where people like Apple, well, you'll open it up and you'll see all kinds of things for circuits. And the reality is, isn't that a plan A, plan B, but it's more about getting your money. They say, 
oh no, we're only going to populate this part of the circuit board, but if you want to pay us a little bit more money, we'll gladly put the more memory, another memory chip on the circuit board and then just pay us more money. And so sometimes it's a, there's, there's high intelligence uh, wisdom behind trying to do this. But anyway, that's, that's electronics and, and not Proverbs. But anyway, back to Proverbs. We find another statement of truth regarding man's choice in planning his way side by side again with the sovereignty of God. The mind of man plans his way, Proverbs 16, 9, but the Lord directs his steps. So the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord is the director of the steps. Does man make choice in planning his way? Yes, he does. In fact, this is where you see the intellect involved. The mind is involved in making these plans. Um, And yet again, we see the Lord Yahweh is the ultimate director of the steps. Uh, And you'd say, you know, you look into, one might look at these realities and come to an extreme conclusion that, well, my efforts and my work and my plans and and my intellect trying to figure it out, it's of little use since the Lord is the ultimate one calling the shots. But that's not the picture we see in Proverbs because look at these two Proverbs. 1522, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Does God desire us to work carefully at making our choices and our plans regarding our decisions and our way? Yeah, he does. You should work diligent at it. In fact, you should even get counselors, multiple counselors to help you. You should have a a, a sphere of influencers around you that you look to for wisdom as you make these choices. But yet, does our diligence and our effort placed into making these plans matter? Yes, it does. And you'd also be able to come in and say, but is the Lord the ultimate director behind all this? Is he the one directing? Ultimately, he is. And, and that's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to see. Now, and I'll actually use these, these notes right here as an example. I could have just said to myself, I'm not going to do any of this. I'm going to show up there on October 2nd. I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to plan what I'm going to say. I'm not going to do anything with a PowerPoint. I'll just get there. I'll just ask the Lord, and he will, he'll get the job done, right? I could do that. I could make that choice. And you would not be having, uh, you know, not much fun. You're probably not having a lot of fun now anyway. But, but because I'm beginning to go over. But the reality is, is that if I would have done that, it would be a disaster. So you say, well, wait a second. But my son last night, I went down to put him to, to say a prayer. My 13-year-old son said, Dad, it's okay. God will give you the words. And you say, you know, not only is that entirely true, that's exactly what it says. And that's exactly what the whole message is about. The plans of the heart belong to man, 16.1. But the answer of the tongue, the words, is from the Lord. Just ask someone like Balaam, for example, who worked, planned so hard to curse the Israelites. And then when he got there, what came out of his mouth? A star will arise out of Jacob. You're like, well, wait a second. I thought we just, uh, your whole purpose of coming here was to try to curse these people. You made plans to curse them. Didn't he? But when the words came out, not so. It was a blessing. What about Moses? Moses says, I can't, I've never been good at speech. 
I'm not eloquent in speech whatsoever. Find someone else. That's what I would choose. But God says, no, who has made man's mouth, Moses? Or who makes him dumb or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. So we see that the Lord works both through our preparation, but yet ultimately my hope is that his words go forth at the end of the day. Uh, and if you're thinking about your plans and your decisions in your life and the way you should go, uh, there's a few last Proverbs that help us see some issues and find out how our plans can be established. Here's a good one. Commit your, whole, your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. We see a link between our plans, the work involved in those plans, and the sovereignty of God. We work hard to establish our plans, but the key is how we involve the Lord in these endeavors. Do you see that? Uh, are we willing to commit them over to the Lord? The word there for commit is to roll them over to him and let him establish them or not. I, when I was in high school, I worked on a, a, I loved electronics, didn't know anything about it. I just love to open it up. And this is probably why I blow up a lot of stuff. But anyway, I just I love opening up stuff. And I had an old Yamaha amplifier that came out of Arrowhead Stadium. Channel was blown. Didn't know what I, you know, I didn't know what I was looking. I got the service manual, got schematic not really educated on what was going on. I had a good friend of mine, a guy that was a relatively high up in Allied Signal, now Honeywell Aerospace, and I took it to him and said, can you, can we maybe, maybe you could show me how we fix this thing. So we start working on it, and we work on it several Saturday afternoons, and, and this guy, you know, he's a, a smart individual, working, trying his best, and not getting paid for anything, he's just a good friend trying to help me. We got to the end. We finally got it to power up. And I remember saying to Larry, I said, Larry, I was just, I just, I was so thankful because, you know, I offered a real quick prayer that it wouldn't, you know, it would come to life, it would work. And he said, Joel, I've been praying the entire time. I've been committed. That's a way of saying, I've been rolling this over to the Lord the whole time. Don't think that because I've got a degree in engineering, that that's how I got it done. Because it was my work. And my great intellect and knowledge into the electronics, he, that's what he, Larry was saying, I had to turn this over to the Lord the whole time. Otherwise, guess what? Fire and brimstone from the old Yamaha pours out. Um, so one other proverb that is key when you talk about plans and decisions, it's key for us to see that we do have an issue with our capacities that we need to know about regarding our planning. Uh, we ultimately, if we, if we rely solely on our own capacities and our choices and how we do this, Proverbs tells us where we end up. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it's in therein is the way of death. Uh, so you're given the, the ability to choose your way, but if we don't turn to a transcendent God and his wisdom and direction, our lack of guidance will lead us to death. This reality paints, a, at times you'd say, well, that's really frustrating. I don't have a built-in GPS? No, you don't. You have to be willing to submit and turn to what his wisdom tells you and to seek wise counsel in a matter. Uh, and that, that's actually, though, good news. You come away not being able to boast in your own ability, but being able to say, I had to turn it to the Lord to figure out direction. The last sort of thing on when you talk about choices of man and the sovereignty of God, uh, our choices in life show forth our character. 
Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. How they choose to live on this earth, you'll be able to see it. And choices define many things about ourselves. Um, How we respond to situations. What if you didn't even make the choice like Joseph? You didn't even choose to be thrown into the pit. You didn't even choose to be carried off to Egypt. But guess what? Joseph does have a choice. How's he going to respond to that situation? Um, The Lord, we see, he watches to see how we choose. 1622, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. 21.2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. 5.21, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all of his paths. 16.7, this is one I always like, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, here's the sovereignty, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You see a little bit of a theme in these Proverbs. Solomon painting an excellent portrait here. The God like John saw on the island of Patmos when he saw Jesus with eyes of fire. He sees all. There's nothing that will be hidden. Not a single choice or decision you made or attitude or motive. Even deep in your heart, he'll see right past the decision. I've made decisions. And I know deep down what the motive was. You may not. God does. He'll look past the outward choice and say, I even will go as far as to look into the motives of your heart as to why you chose this. Uh, you know, you'd say, how, and you look at that last proverb, how would I walk in a way pleasing to the Lord then? Because there's where the sovereignty comes in where he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. And I would say we've seen several answers. Choose to fear the Lord. Submit to his will. Set your will aside for his. Commit your works to him and roll your efforts over to him. Trust in him with all your heart. Don't look to your own understanding. Know him and acknowledge him in all the things that you do. Then your ways result in being pleasing to him as you walk that way. You'd say, well, what is his will for these situations as we go into this? Obviously, that would be what we could have a whole other sermon on that. But if I was to boil down to two quick statements, to a Christian, we know For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And to an unbeliever, I'd say John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I want to tell one last story. I know it's a little, I'm a little over, but bear with me on this very, very cool and fascinating story. This story from the Old Testament highlights what we've been trying to paint, a picture of both choices of man, The diligence and the actions of man, they have outward consequence or blessing that can result as a result of that. But we also see the sovereignty of God. Back in about 705 BC, a guy came to the throne of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was at a point that it had grown under Tiglath-Pileser. They had conquered many nations around them. His son, Shalmaneser, And his grandson, Sargon II, have expanded the Assyrian Empire beyond belief. They've conquered the Babylonians. They conquered the Egyptian kingdom. They conquered the Israelite tribes in the north handily and carried them off to captivity. And this was one of the most powerful empires of that era. 
But yet you see, I'm glad someone did the little circle for me. That's good. We didn't have that first service, so thank you for doing that. You see a little yellow holdout there, and that really irked Sennacherib. I need to go. I'm going to make the, the choice and the determination to take my army to that spot. And I will go, just like my father and my grandfather before me, who had conquered many nations, and we will do what we've done best with our great army full of wise generals. And we will go and we will crush Judah and Jerusalem. And we will take them once and for all. And he goes and he shows up with close to 200,000 men surrounding Hezekiah and the walls of Jerusalem. And he rants and he raves and he tries to demoralize all of Israel in in his words. And he says, no other God has been able to deliver the Babylonians, the Egyptians, all the other nations before us. We've conquered them all. Don't listen to Hezekiah. And whatever you do, don't think that your God, Yahweh, is going to do anything. We're going to crush him just like we've crushed every other God. And he made the choice to do all this. And they planned. It doesn't, you don't go out with two, close to 200,000 individuals without planning, without decision-making, without taking actions, figuring out provisions. If you're going to go and besiege a fortified city, it takes action. But we find out the Lord responding to this action through the great prophet Isaiah, speaking to Hezekiah and ultimately talking directly to Sennacherib. He says this to Sennacherib, this is God speaking, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? I'll tell you who against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers, you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choicest cypresses, and I entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. This man had a lot of plans, and he had done, it accomplished great feats on the earth. But then God answers him and says, let's talk about where my sovereignty comes into this equation. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. What is it that I have brought to pass? That you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it has grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. And because of your raging against me and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will sovereignly put my hook into your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way in which you came. Sennacherib and his grandfather and his father had many plans in many ways, and worked with much diligence to accomplish great powerful feats in the face of many empires. And God comes along and says, have you not heard? 
I was the one that had planned this from the very beginning. But you said it was me, it was me, it was me, my will, I did it. No. I was the one who turned those cities and made them roll over and allow you to walk all over them. You'd say, but did, did not Sennacherib have a huge army of 200,000? Doesn't that matter? Yes, it did. But also God's sovereignty was strongly in play. So you consider some closing questions. You balance these, the idea of man's choices. We have choices. Today we will go out of these doors. We have choices. And we have choices as believers, and we have a great choice as, un- as an unbeliever. For a believer, ask yourself, have I been choosing to daily submit my will to his? Or have I been keeping on the old self, choosing rather to exercise my desire over his? Have I been living life based upon my own understanding? What has become the result of my efforts, my work, and my choices? Have I been committing all my works to the Lord? Am I choosing to trust and abide in him each day? These are real-world choices for the believer. It's why the New Testament's full of do not be conformed, but be transformed. Put, on the new, put off the old self, put on the new self. What about do all things without grumbling? Consider others as more important than yourself. Do you have a choice in these matters, by the way? Paul seems to pretty strongly indicate, yeah, you do. And you need to make, think about those choices. And this is why I believe the Lord has set before us as the foremost example above all, his son who flat out answered and said to his father, not my will, but thy will. I'll let you know what my choice is, father. I would rather not take that cup. But I'm also going to make the choice to submit to your will. And as an unbeliever, you'd say, well, ask yourself this, if we we have any unbelievers out here, what are the sources directing your life? or my life? Do I have the ability to find the right path on my own? Have I been following the right guideposts in life? Will I get to make it to the river of life? Will I stand and see the tree of life with God on his throne, with light emanating? And I contend that any man who follows his own compass follows the way that leads him down the road of death. And he won't get to the place I just described, paradise restored. Ultimately, he'll end up forever removed from the mercy of God and instead arrive in a place of eternal pain, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Again, two roads. But contrary to popular belief, there's only one road that leads to life. And his name is Jesus. And he is the way the truth, and the life. And I would ask the question, have you chosen to submit to him and believe that who he says he is is who he says he is, that he is the son of God and that he died on a cross for your sins? Choice the Lord leaves before you. We also see the call of the Lord involved. So Lord, we come before you today.